Hello, listeners. You are listening to another episode of That's Entertainment. You may have just heard me drop my pen and then pick it back up on my desk. Maybe not. I'm, I don't know how sensitive my microphone is being, but I'll find out while I'm in editing. And you can let me know uh, if you like that. Uh, I'm your pop culture maven, Jeff Malone. And with me, as always, live from Hampton, Maine, it's my Aunt Beth Woods. Aunt Beth, may I ask you how you are today? <laughs> yes, you may. I am fine. Enjoying some nice weather, except in Maine, we get black flies that start around Mother's Day and last till oh. Father's Day, and they are quite annoying. I don't know if I've talked about them before, but just when the weather starts to get nice, you get these teeny little flies that swarm around your face, and it's not enjoyable. So, yeah, um, when you hear people shouting mother, you know it's because of those flies. That's right. And uh, I have to use like off or some sort of repellent, which I do not like to use, but when I walk the dogs in the woods, I have to, otherwise I'd go crazy. So, but besides that, it's been pretty, the weather's been pretty nice. Okay. Well, we do have a guest today, so he can let us know the insect situation in his neck of the woods, and we'll have pretty much the entire East Coast covered. Uh, you have heard him before, if you've listened to some of our Jeopardy episodes, and now he's, uh, believe it or not, he actually has interests beyond game shows. Uh, so live from Atlanta, Georgia, please welcome back our friend Stephen Grade. Stephen, Hello. how are you? I'm, I'm doing wonderful. It's great to be back here with the two of you. Yes, we're glad to have you. And uh, yeah, and um, you uh, are... I hope I'm not revealing too much by mentioning that you are visiting family currently, but you were able to make time for us, which, uh, what do you think about that, Aunt Beth? Is it, are we, do you think that's okay? That he's going to make time for us. <laughs> well, in the midst of, of visiting family. Oh, yes. We shouldn't keep him too long though, because I'm sure he wants to get back to family, but yes, that's very nice of you to take time out of your schedule well if, if oh, any of, of them we'll first in the room thrilled. they get no they're i was just saying they're thrilled they get to spend time with their their grandson without me around so with, they, yeah. they couldn't be happier right now oh well good i'm glad and you get a little break so everybody wins yeah um Let's see. Yes. Yeah, so Stephen is a uh, fairly new father. Um, that topic, is that related to the topic we're discussing? Possibly? Not no, really. I mean, parenthood tends to come up in a lot of uh, pieces of entertainment, even if it's not specifically about that. But... Well, the baby will definitely be getting introduced to Mel Brooks as soon as he's allowed to look at TV screens. <laughs> but you may have to censor it a little, depending Just what a little you... bit. Yeah. Uh, uh, some some parts some parts I suppose. Although we'll get into it later, but I had a pretty good you know nice and easy path into Mel Brooks, so maybe I'll try to replicate that for him. Oh, good. Okay. Yes, and we'll, that's what we'll be talking about today. So maybe those of you listeners who are also new parents or parents to be, maybe you can uh, look at Stephen it's Stephen's example, or maybe minor empaths to decide how you will introduce your own kids to uh mel brooks uh, but anyway yeah so uh, it's it's may so this is a special time of year because beth and i usually do a big episode around this time and take a little summer break um we're, we're not entirely sure if this is our last one before taking a break but um We'll let you know. We keep keep your uh, eyes and ears peeled on our, our social channels. And if I need to pop in for a mini episode or something, uh, we'll do that. But uh, yeah, in the meantime, uh, we've got this episode about Mel Brooks, and uh, which we decided to do in the wake of uh, History of the World Part 2 on Hulu. Uh, but before I get into that, a quick recap. I did run a poll recently after our Daisy Jones episode. And I asked um, 
our Twitter followers, who's your favorite fictional movie band? Oh. I meant to also run a poll about TV bands as well, but um, forgot to get to that. Maybe I could, I could still do it, even though uh, we're moving on. But anyway, uh, the choices I asked were The Wonders from uh, That Thing You Do, Spinal Tap, School of Rock, or Other. And uh, who do you think ended up winning? I'd say uh, Spinal Tap. Steven, any guess for that? I'm going to go with the Oneaters. <laughs> well, it was a 50-50 split, actually, Aunt Beth. So you're, you're half right. Uh, Spinal oh, Tap in uh, School of Rock. Oh, in School of Rock. for the, okay. the win there. Yes. Justice for Erie, Pennsylvania's very own the Oneaters. I love the Oneaters. Yeah. <laughs> so. um, Okay. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about that when I when we had our when we were talking about our favorite fic- fictional bands and I I mentioned the Oneaters. Yeah, I should have I should have said Pennsylvania represent when I uh, <laughs> my my home state uh, brethren there. Uh, who are the who's the top uh, uh, mus- who's the most famous musician from Pennsylvania nowadays? nowadays i would have to think but i mean philadelphia soul is you know just like such a big genre unto itself yeah. there's there's any number well, of bands that you could come up with well, nowadays i think it would actually have to be taylor swift and she might actually be big enough that you could say she's number one all time yeah it's tough to get much bigger than that these days mm-hmm. i didn't even know she was from pa yeah she's from uh, reading Oh, okay. Uh, okay, so I guess uh, the Trevor's uh, recapping. Uh, but Aunt Beth, did you um? Let's see. What did you listen to the mini episodes I did? I think I uh, I had a oh. recommendation. I listened to that. Yeah, to the dazed and confused. Yes. Did you approve of of my opinion? Yeah, that? you know I haven't watched it in a long time. Um, so I, I, it's interesting to hear that. Yeah, I don't know if I even loved it too. I was actually surprised that you hadn't seen it. <laughs> but um, yeah, it had a great cast. I, I don't remember the story like standing out at all. I should mm-hmm. rewatch it again. But, but I'm glad you got to see it and see what you thought about it. Yeah, I am too. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, well, um, I guess we're ready to get into the main topic. So uh, if you're a new listener, and that's entertainment, the premise is we pick a pop culture topic and discuss it according to the three F's. First, favorite, and forever. It's our own little way of putting things in context. And I'll go ahead and... Uh, introduce the particular topic that we have settled on for today's episode. On June 28th, 1926, Max and Kate Kaminsky of Brooklyn welcomed their fourth son, Melvin, into the world. And we've all been laughing nonstop ever since. Yes, Melvin Kaminsky, better known as Mel Brooks. He is a filmmaker, comedian, uh, maker of laughs extraordinaire. Uh, He has, he directed some of the most beloved movie comedies of all time, many of them parodies of other movies or movie genres. And we decided to talk about him today because uh, Hulu recently released the TV show History of the World Part 2, a sequel to his anthology movie, History of the World Part 1. So we're going to talk about that specifically right after we do a bit of a retrospective of Mel Brooks's entire career. So to kick that off, we'll do the section in which the section that is called First naturally enough, and um, where we talk about our earliest encounters with this uh, area of pop culture. So the questions at hand for this matter are, when and how did we first encounter 
encounter the works of Mel Brooks and how did we become fans of his? And also, uh, where does he stand in the pantheon of parodists and in the pantheon of filmmakers uh, to just, you know, to not to be um, too pompous, but to maybe just a little bit. Um, but anyway, it's, it's all about, uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so we usually have our uh, guest uh, talk first. So, uh, Stephen, what do you think about all that? Yeah, so, and to kind of go back to what I mentioned a few minutes ago, the reason that I feel like I had kind of a nice, clean, easy introduction to Mel Brooks because my, was because my introduction to Mel Brooks wasn't through any of his movies. My introduction to Mel Brooks was through his television work, specifically uh, Get Smart which uh, he was one of the co-creators of. Uh, Get Smart was a, uh, an, uh, like M- so much Mel Brooks, it was a parody of uh, 60s uh, spy thrillers, spy movies, spy television shows, uh, starring Don Adams and Barbara Feldon as agents uh, working for the organization Control, uh, naturally opposed to the organization Chaos. And it was, you know, it was Mel doing early, doing Mel things. It was kind of poking gentle fun at the tropes of the the spy stories of the day. Uh, you know, at about the time you you've got early James Bond, so uh, Sean Connery's got a few under his belt. So you've got you know Q and the gadgets and gizmos and things like that, uh, <laughs> making James Bond look like the coolest guy on the silver screen. And here on the idiot box on your small little screen, you've got Don Adams, you know, working with things like a shoe phone or a grilled cheese phone. Uh, you've, you've got things like the cone of silence, which is this device that comes down over the heads of two people that want to have a private conversation so nobody outside of the cone can hear them. Uh, but the trick, the, the problem was that the other person inside the cone along with you couldn't hear you either. So you've got plenty of, you know, fun, goofy, farcical, physical comedy of two people yelling at each other through muffled glass that nobody can hear them through. Uh, You've got Don Adams talking into a shoe. You've got Barbara Feldon as kind of the suave, smooth, you know, more with it uh, secret agent uh, saving the day, but also doing things like talking into a bar of soap because that's where her phone was concealed. Uh, You've got agents who hide themselves in trees. Uh, you've got kind of a, a bit of a Hogan's Heroes take on the bad guys who are, I believe are, you know, ostensibly Russian or Eastern European, but are always, you know, kind of bumbling and kind of amusing and not exactly that big of a, you know, a world altering threat. Um, but it was it's like just it was just a really kind of smooth, natural introduction. Uh, I was at least vaguely familiar with, you know, James Bond movies at about the time when I was staying up late to watch this on Nick at Night growing up. So I, I at least had a general idea of what was being, you know, parodied here. But I certainly wasn't as well versed in, you know, James Bond as I am now. So for me, it was just seeing kind of, you know, a bumbling guy accidentally saving the day. Uh, and all of the, you know, the goofy adventures that he can find himself getting into. Uh, and it was airing on television in the 60s. So, you know, it had to be G or PG rated. Yeah. So for for somebody growing up and watching this when he was staying up late after his bedtime, you know, probably, I don't know, six, eight, ten years old. Uh, it was a great introduction to kind of what the Mel Brooks ethos is. And then as I grew up, you my experience with Mel Brooks has kind of been like, I was reading an article the other day about Weird Al Yankovic and the author of it said um, everyone's favorite Weird Al Yankovic album is always the one that came out when they were 12. Uh, And I feel like Mel Brooks has kind of got a similarity to that where your first Mel Brooks film is probably going to be the one that is most closely aligned with your interests at the time. Uh, so growing up, I was a big Robin Hood fan. I loved the Disney movie. I loved the adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. Uh, so when I was in first grade and Robin Hood Prince of Thieves was so huge, but then immediately after that, you've got Robin Hood Men in Tights. Uh, so that was, again, a nice kind of smooth transition into more Mel Brooks. And then from there, I'm getting into Star Wars and looky here, Mel Brooks has a Star Wars parody movie that he did. <laughs> Uh, I start to get into history and, oh, my goodness, Mel Brooks did a history movie. Um, So that was kind of how it happened for me was I knew who Mel Brooks was because I saw his name on the awesome, if I may say so, opening credits of Get Smart, watching that so much. And then here's this guy who 
whether his interests were aligned with mine or if my interests just happened to be aligned with that of you know pop culture at large when Mel Brooks was doing these works. Uh, it ended up working out really well because I was just kind of, I graduated to a new interest and Mel Brooks had graduated along with me to that interest a few years before. Uh, as far as where he stands kind of in the pantheon of Paradise, I feel like he's right. It's him and Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, they both kind of have the uncanny ability to not just make a parody of the thing, but make it an excellent entry in the as the song says he's white and nerdy but he is a really good rapper he's got really really good flow and can get a ton of lyrics out very clearly in a very quick span of time so when weird al does a rap parody it's actually legitimately a pretty good performance considering uh with mel brooks if you look at you know his his body of work He's not just making fun of universal horror or making fun of Westerns, but he is making legitimately good horror movies and good Western movies. Uh, so it kind of goes the one step beyond just being funny, but kind of diving into the nuts and bolts of what makes this particular piece iconic or what makes this particular genre tick and managing to include those things as well as poking fun at it. Uh, he's kind of gotten away from this a little with his recent work, but Edgar Wright is another person who is great at making a great comedy take on a certain genre, but making sure the whole time that the work is a great entry in that genre as well. Uh, it's a really delicate balance to try and maintain, but it's one that Mel Brooks has always invariably done very, very well. Wow. You speak so well, <laughs> I feel like Mel Well. I completely forgot about Get Smart because <laughs> I was thinking more in terms of movies and, and things. And boy, I was a huge fan of that. So I will have to add that. Maybe that was my first introduction because I would have been probably about 10 when that came out. Um, but I had thought that I probably had heard him, he and Carl Reiner do the 2000 year old man um, on probably on Ed Sullivan in the late 60s. And then I also remember think, um, my brother, Jeff's dad, uh, kind of probably introducing me to the movie, The Producers. Um, and so that's, I sort of knew him from all of those. I forgot about, I mean, I knew he wrote for uh, Sid Caesar, but I forgot that he wrote Get Forget or produced Get Smart. I, that was such a clap. That Don Adams, I loved him. It was hilarious. Anyway, um, yeah, and also what you mentioned about he and Weird Al being probably two of the best satirists around. I have to agree with with that. Uh, what one thing I've noticed about myself is that all almost all the comedians that I love have a very funny, distinct voice. It's the kind where the person, they open their mouth and I almost laugh. And so Mel certainly fits that because his voice, it's just, I mean, you hear it and you're like, oh my God, that's Mel Brooks. And it's interesting because I, I think um, I'm like that with um, Jim Gaffigan and uh, Jerry Seinfeld. And there's a guy, um, Gary Gullman, who I really like, and they all have really funny voices. So I'm a huge fan from just from that and just his brilliance on the 2000 year old man skits and um, his movies that that's why I became such a fan. I just think I just love to hear him talk, not even in a movie, but do an interview or something like that. I think that's when he's almost the funniest. So um, yeah, that's what made me a fan. Okay, well, I'll mention, yeah, so I'll have to mention Weird Al too. And you know, Stephen, you were kind of, you kind of uh, already articulated some of the things I was going to say in that regard. Like I was going to say, what Weird Al is to music, Mel Brooks is to movies. <laughs> there are other song parody artists and there are other people who have made parody movies, some of them quite iconically, like the Abrams, Zucker, Zucker Brothers mm -hmm. of Airplane and Naked Gun fame come to mind. But yeah, I mean, like Mel Brooks was just the master of the form. Like uh, he, 
if you care about comedies, if you care about comedy movies, you just have to know Mel Brooks. Um, but yeah, my introduction to him, I guess, was a little unique, at least among the three of us here. Um, and I have a vague memory of watching Spaceballs for the first time. I was probably six or seven, and it might have been at my grandmother's house in Yardley, Pennsylvania, your your mom's house, Aunt um, Beth. And I may have even been watching it with my cousins. Could my, be. Uh, yeah. Um, our past guests, uh, Aunt Beth's kids, Bory and Wesley, they may have been there and... Uh, I believe my dad had already introduced me to Star Wars, and now we find out that there's this movie making fun of Star Wars, and we watched it, and I fell in love. As uh, this is, this movie gets me. I need to watch it over and over. I need to know everything else made by the people who made this movie, and uh, yeah, and here I am today about 30 years later still with very much the same comedic sensibility and uh, yeah oh and and back to weird al that article you mentioned steven was that the uh, npr ranking of his 40 best songs yes it was the one that uh, stephen thompson wrote yes i, I caught that one as well um what'd they pick for number one uh white and nerdy oh okay I'd be. I'd have a hard time picking. That's off the top of it. Picking my favorite, but wow. Do you even rem- remember which ones you picked as your favorite when we did our weird? I know episodes? I did. I think I picked uh, "Pretty Fly for a Rabbi," maybe, Sounds or or right. the Amish uh, Paradise. Those two, maybe. But I do love White and Nerdy too. Anyway, <laughs> I just before we move on to our next section i found this quote on get smarts wikipedia page uh, mel brooks said of the methods that they used on get smart do what they did meaning uh, james bond except just stretch it half an inch interesting okay. well b- because when you look at it and you even look at some of the bond films how easy it became for them to kind of lapse into self-parody you know you look at what happened to you know the later Pierce Brosnan movies or how winky uh, Sean Connery's could get or Roger Moore's it, you, you don't really have to push that hard to make a James Bond movie funny <laughs> uh, you know Daniel Craig's like per, like especially had to make effort to kind of lean in the opposite direction to make them more serious to make them more grounded to turn them into something that can't be poked fun at that easily but even then, it's impossible for, you know, something that that heightened and that ridiculous to not occasionally wink. Uh, and with Get Smart, like it, that, that quote sums it up perfectly. You don't have to push too much further to make it funny. But if you give it just that little nudge in the right direction, uh, you've got an all time classic comedy. That's, that's perfect. OK, I love it. I love it. I love it. I guess it's time to move on to the favorite section, which we naturally enough discuss our favorites examples of the topic at hand. So everyone, what are you, what's your favorite Mel Brooks movie? And uh, any, do you have any other favorite things he's ever done outside of movies? So uh, Steven, back to you. Well, I'm just going to, say that I do draw a distinction between favorite and best. So while I don't think that I would claim that it's his best work, uh, your first love is your first love. And it's got to be Robin Hood Men in Tights for me. Uh, like I mentioned, I'm over at my parents' house and they haven't cut the cord yet. So I was flipping through the 500 different channels that they get just yesterday. And there's Robin Hood Men in Tights on HBO 7. So of course I'm of course I'm gonna watch some of it. You know, it's it's the movie that kind of it hit me right at that perfect moment where I knew that this was something that I was into. I was dressing as Robin Hood for Halloween, even though people said I looked like Peter Pan. Uh, <laughs> and then here's here's Mel Brooks, you know, just catering to my interest for the first of many many times throughout my life. Um, you know, when I every time I rewatch it, 
it's like I'm I've finally aged into some of the jokes. Mm. Um, you know, I didn't, it, you know, in 1993 or whatever it was, like I didn't necessarily know what the Patriot missile was, but I knew that Robin, you know, firing an arrow and it's zooming all over the place and going through the crowd and everything and eventually hitting the target was funny. And then as I get older, I'm like, oh, like this is an, a, this is a first Gulf War joke, uh, which, you know, six year old me never would have been able to figure yeah. out. Uh, but then eventually I'm able to revisit it and I'm like, oh, okay, I see what you were doing there. So even something that is kind of tied into, and this is true for, I would say, you know, probably several of Mel Brooks's later works as they became more kind of laser focused on a specific point in time. The jokes are kind of jokes to that, the pop culture of the day. Um, you can kind of grow up along with them if you saw them at an early enough age. Um, you know, like just stuff that I was watching yesterday now because I knew we had this podcast coming up and I was thinking like, I didn't understand that they were, that Robin Hood was at one, at one point quoting, you know, Winston Churchill's, you know, we shall fight on the beaches speech. I didn't get that Dave Chappelle's character was quoting Malcolm X at one point. I, I didn't know who Winston Churchill was at age seven, and I hadn't seen Malcolm X at age seven. Uh, but now I can rewatch it. And, you know, when when a true says Plymouth Rock fell on us, I'm like, oh, OK, I get that reference now. And it adds something to the viewing of the film, because as I as I. I kind of age into the humor, even if that humor is pinned to a very specific point in time. When I was at that very specific point in time, I didn't understand what that was. I just knew that this was a Robin Hood movie, but it was funny and they were doing silly things and making silly jokes that Errol Flynn, you know, didn't make in, in 1939. Um, so that's, that's the one, you know, even more than, you know, his, his canonical works, even more than Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein. If I want to just like get get a quick little hit of Mel Brooks, or if I see something on HBO Seven that's going to make me stop and watch for a little while, it's going to be Robin Hood Men in Tights. And, uh, and great, as far as good music to it too, right? Oh, it <laughs> it, it does. Like, yeah, it it's it's great, and you know, like it that's that kind of leads me into the next half of the question: a Mel Brooks favorite outside of his film work. Uh, one thing that Mel Brooks's movies have always done well, whether they are musicals or not, uh, they've always had great musical numbers. So it only seemed natural that one day he's going to do a Broadway show and it's going to be a very self-aware big Broadway show about putting on a big Broadway show. And you're going to have something as indelible as the producers. Uh, it was just it was something meant to be. It, it reminds me how. I always felt like watching Steven Spielberg movies that he was always building up to someday doing a musical. And then a couple years ago, he finally did West Side Story just because the way that he moves the camera, the way that he stages, stages action always kind of had a, a musical rhythm to it, uh, like he was choreographing a large scale dance. Uh, and then going back and watching Mel Brooks movies, you know, I can remember growing up thinking like, oh, like the musical parts are usually the best part of this. Like, what, where's the Mel Brooks musical? And lo and behold, Mel must have thought that too, because the producer is just the, the, the stage version, at least the movie version, you know, uh, it, mm, we can talk about that some other time. But I did see the stage version on Broadway, uh, unfortunately, about a week and a half after uh, Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick had left the cast, but it was oh. still a great show. It was still fantastic. Uh, and because of that, the tickets were a whole lot less expensive. Uh, and I still got to have a great time and just kind of, you know, it wash over me how this thing, how I, you know, been wondering if it would ever happen uh, because, you know, you watch, you know, history of the world part one, and you've got the Spanish inquisition number doing the big Bubsy, Ber Bubsy Berkeley style. Uh, you've got, you know, the, the Robin Hood men in tights theme. Uh, you've got, I'm tired from blazing saddles. Like this, these are just great, hilarious musical numbers. Uh, why not just do them for two and a half hours and put it on a stage somewhere? Uh, so for me, that is kind of that is kind of even though it is based on one of his films, that's kind of the big, you know, non non film mill work, uh, the the big canonical one for me. Oh. Um, my favorite has to be Spaceballs, um, which we talked about already. But I mean, the same thing. It's hard to pick. I did. It's interesting because I started. Um, I forget what year Robin Hood Men in Tights came out. I wrote that down somewhere. 95. 90, yeah. So my the, my boys were a little older then. And so I probably watched that with them, which was kind of fun to see it 
through their eyes. And I, I like what Stephen said about, I, that's what's so fantastic about him because, you know, kids will watch it and think it's hilarious, but probably half the, of the jokes go over their heads. And then as you, like you said, as you get older, you start to, to understand more that, than you did when you first watched it. Um, also what I think too is, probably every time you watch one of his movies, you'll see things that you didn't notice um, from, you know, each time around or enjoy things more, but the just space balls, it just was, <laughs> I don't know. It just was so funny. And the, I mean, they all are, but some of the lines of the dialogue and just, I could, it's just was so creative when they're talking about the, as they're making the movie, they're talking about the movie coming out and, just like just and when he's plays um yogurt and they ask him his name and he says just plain yogurt and that just stuck with me forever so that's got to be my favorite and then I already mentioned before um the 2000 year old man as aside from the movies and um I really want to watch more of those a few years ago I was at your house Jeff and your dad I don't know if you guys somebody had given your dad the set complete set I think of the recordings and we your dad was playing a few of them and sometime I'd love to just sit and listen to more of those because it's just it's the same thing like he just says a few it's all ad-libbed he says a few lines and they're just hysterical so uh those are those are my favorites yeah well I mean I guess I'll continue the pattern of picking something that's not considered like one of his uh, certified masterpieces, I guess, if you will. I've been recently, I listened to the Unspooled podcast and um, Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson, they've been, the past couple episodes have been, coincidentally enough, Mel Brooks movies. They talked about mm -hmm. Young Frankenstein and uh, Blazing Saddles, which I think are generally considered to be in the critical community and they're generally considered to be his two greatest but yeah for me uh i will echo what you just said aunt beth Spaceballs is is um not just my favorite mel brooks movies but uh one of my favorite movies maybe top five of all movies yeah. of all time and yeah it just it fits my sensibility so well the fourth wall breaking that mel brooks mm -hmm. is famous for the all the puns just non-stop puns <laughs> uh you know just there he's not too good for any bit of wordplay um and you know i find there's a lot of lines that can just apply to random situations in real life like when they're trying to escape the ship at the end and um, Dark Helmet and President Scroob and Colonel Sanders are trying to get out. And there's like a, a fail safe button that they want to push, but it's not working. And then one of them shouts out, even in the future, nothing works. So, you know, like the promise of living of technological advances that things are supposed to get better and better. But of course, no matter what smartphone evolution you have or whatever, whatever smart, supposedly smart device you have in your home, it always requires some fix or some upgrade along the line. So I'm like, that's just, you know, that, that that's just a perfect encapsulation of one of the, of a, a constant annoyance in life. And yeah, I mean, it just the, all the silly moments, the pizza, the hut and his associate eating him and telling him you are delicious. And I don't know. I could, yeah. I could quote it forever. I know. Just... Um, and as for something beyond his film work, well, I wanted to mention a little, a story about Mel Brooks that I think was, became kind of a bit of a headline during the early days of the pandemic the fact that uh he and carl reiner would always watch jeopardy together every <laughs> night and when they were when they couldn't do it in person together anymore they i think they got on the phone together and had the call going through while the whole episode was on so yeah it's uh always nice to have 
someone to watch along with with mm-hmm. uh, have a have a jeopardy buddy so that was <laughs> we knew they were friends and longtime collaborators that just made uh, uh them even more endearing i remember when i heard when carl reiner died and i remember thinking poor mel brooks <laughs> yeah. i mean how many years had they they must have been friends for I don't know, over 50 years. And I just love that. Yeah, like you said, that made him so endearing and then made it, I just felt sad that his, his best friend was gone. Yeah, as, as singular as my Jeopardy experience was, I think that the thing that I hope for the most is that something that I did or said on the show made Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner laugh. Oh, like that, that, that would just be like more than, you know, being on tv more than any amount of winnings more than anything mm-hmm. if i said something silly and it gave mel and brooks they- a chuckle <laughs> that would yeah like that's that is the yeah. least that i can do for someone who has been making me laugh since i was you know probably five or six years yeah. old like even just and i can think back in the episodes and think okay i may have had like a moment or two that had a shot at it you know <laughs> a couple of goofy wordplay categories but that was kind of one of the things that yeah i mean i i had remember i had read about Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, you know, never missing an episode even before I was on. So that was kind of one of those thoughts that after you find out you're going to be on the show and like everything starts sinking in, eventually it's like, oh, wow, Mel Brooks is going to be watching me That's on TV. Right. That's incredible. <laughs> How did this happen? Yeah. Um, but yeah, just like two, two of the all-time great Celebrity Jeopardy fans right there. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I don't, now thinking that, I, I may lifelong jeopardy contestant a lifelong aspiring jeopardy contestant so now with that thought i don't know if that'll knowing that mel brooks is watching me i don't know if that'll make me nor- more nervous or, or more excited or <laughs> you have to put it out of your mind <laughs> yeah. uh, are just, we ready to move on everybody to watching a... you on tv naked yeah what's that just, just picture everybody watching you on t- on tv naked i'm sure mel would approve yes uh now i'm thinking that gives me an idea naked jeopardy could mel brooks have done that like if could that have been like i don't know (laughs) and they did i don't know yeah they did um there was that nude beach sketch on snl which I don't know, maybe like it could be something like that. You know, just uh, some random thought. Anyway, uh, are we ready to move on to uh, the trivia section? Yeah. Okay. And we're going to. Are we going to do the uh, history of the world part two bit first, or does that come after trivia? Uh, well, yeah, that, that'll be in the forever section. So that'll come after gotcha. trivia. So does, does gotcha. everyone have a question? I do. I do. Okay. Uh, all right, Stephen. Then why don't you go first? All right. Uh, so my question is: Mel Brooks is famously an EGOT winner. He has won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Uh, in fact, he has won combined eleven of his awards. My question is: How many of those awards were for were for the producers? Ooh. So he's won eleven. Total of counting yes, and, and yes, yes, including and both are, the movie and the musical. That's part of the question. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, so let's see. I bet a lot were. So Grammy. I bet he only won one Emmy. Grammy. Well, thing oh. Emmys. Well, he. I don't know. He could have won like multiple writing Emmys. Yeah. Uh, Oh, I might have won a guest Emmy. I think it was Possibly. a guest. Yeah. So one, two. I'm gonna say seven. Well, I, I mean, the, the producers won Maybe. a lot of Tonys, but they weren't all for him. Like he would have won. I guess he would have won best musical and oh. best book of a musical. That's and true. I believe you. I'm going to change just, I'm going to say six. Okay. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to, so I, I know he won the screenplay for the movie, 
I'm pretty sure you won for that. So then I'm going to think in he won uh, for the musical. I'm thinking he won best musical and then book of a musical and maybe one other. So I'm going to say four. Mel Brooks won five of those 11 awards for the producers. So you were four uh, and I said six. So. Yeah, you, wow. you, you were all on the right track. He won three for the stage version, best musical, best book of a musical, and best original score. Uh, he did win best original screenplay in 1969 for the film version, but he also won a Grammy for the producers for best musical theater album. Right. He, he oh. did also win that same year best long form music video for a behind the scenes documentary about the producers. So oh. it's maybe arguably five and a half, but since that had that work had a different <laughs> name, I didn't include it in, in the list. Okay. Huh. That's a good question though. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't, I think he won. It'd be interesting to think. I think he won. Wasn't he on mad about you? He was. Like he, he won did he win several. An Emmy for that. Yes, he won. I thought he got won. it right here. He won three in a row of outstanding guest actor in a comedy series for Mad All About All for you. that. All for Mad mm -hmm. About You. Wow, that's funny. Okay, well, I have two quick ones. So, I, which two films have the biggest uh, video sales of Mel Brooks? Videos. You can both guess, and then I'll. Um, I'm. I'm inclined to say Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles. I, well, if my, if me and my friends are any indication, then Spaceballs would be one of them. And I'm going to go for the other one. I will go with one of the, the two big heavy hitters. I will say Blazing Saddles. It's actually Spaceballs and Men in Tights, according to really the wow. Tights. I know. Well, hey, so I should have gone with my own preferences. Yeah, maybe because they were a little newer. Well, not what was now, that according to? I don't know. It was when I just Googled um, okay. Mel Brooks trivia. So hopefully it's tr it's true, but it was okay. And then which Mel Brooks movie was his highest? grossing box office hit and it gives you a choice but i don't know if you want the there's three choices uh blazing saddles young frankenstein or the producers highest grossing box office i think it's blazing saddles i'm gonna agree i think it's blazing saddles as well yeah 119 million five hundred thousand so do you know if that was domestic or worldwide? Uh, I'm not sure. But that's, yeah, I didn't. Let's sure find out. There's, there's plenty of websites where you can figure that out. Yeah. Okay, what do you have, Jeff? Uh, yeah, it looks like I just typed it in on Box Office Mojo. It looks like that figure is the domestic total. Okay. Uh, okay. So that's pretty good for a 1974 movie. Yeah. All right. My trivia question is how many movies directed by Mel Brooks are on the American Film Institute's 100 Years 100 Laughs list? Oh, wow. So they're the AFI's list of the 100 funniest movies of all time. I know there's like, I'm going to say three. Three. Okay. Hmm. Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein are definite. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think Blazing Saddles might even be in the top ten. Um, I'll go with four. I'll 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 think that another another one might have snuck in there after the producers as well. All right. The correct answer is. Three. Ah. And is it the producer? Uh, and they're all like in the top 10, aren't they? I remember uh, reading something. Blazing not too... Saddles is in the top 10. The producers was 11th and Young Frankenstein was 13th. Yeah. Wow. No, all, all top That's... 15. <laughs> yeah. Sheesh. Gotta say something. <laughs> yeah. That's why we're talking about them. Yeah. <laughs>
Hmm. Yes, indeed. Uh, okay, now we move on to the forever section. Forever! 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 And this is where we take stock of where we are now and look ahead to the future. And where we are now is uh, the TV show History of the World Part 2, the long-awaited sequel to the History of the World Part 1 movie. And um, Mel wasn't as involved with this one as he was with the movie. I mean, he is, is what, 96? So, you know, he, he... we can forgive him for taking a bit of a backseat, but there were some other funny people involved. So Mel is, I believe he was one of the create credited uh, writers. who's also the narrator throughout the series, but um, Wanda Sykes, Nick Kroll and Ike Barinholtz were the other main creative forces. They were among the writers and uh, the, they played a variety of characters. And then there were dozens of other actors who uh, appeared if you, if you paid attention to comedy the last 10, 15 years, you know who these people are. They all grew up loving Mel Brooks just as much as we did. So, uh, yeah. So everyone, uh, what did you, what did we think of uh, history of the world part two? Did it honor Mel's legacy? What were the most notable sketches and performances? And then we'll, uh, yes, we'll do that. And then, Maybe one more question, but after, so let's focus on uh, History of the World Part Two. So, uh, Stephen, what did you think? Uh, I had a great time with History of the World Part Two. Um, I, considering how big the laugh I had was when they first announced that it was happening and realizing that, you know, only Mel Brooks would take 40 years between the setup and the punchline, teasing History of the World Part Two and then actually following through with it. Uh, the fact that the show made me laugh more than that realization did really speaks highly of it because that that was just an, an amazing, amazing moment uh, when I saw that headline. Uh, but I think that, you know, just kind of on a general concept, it is a really good idea because History of the World Part One being, you know, a series of sketches, essentially, that which are strung together merely by the fact that they represent different parts of history really does lend itself well to a televised format. Uh, you know, sketch comedy is a, a long time uh, television. I mean, that's that's where Mel Brooks got his start working for, for Sid Caesar way back when. Uh, so kind of adapting that idea to this format, it does kind of feel like a, a real good summation of Mel Brooks's career and a really smart way to you know finally follow through on the promise of of Hitler on ice and Jews in space by doing it on television instead of uh, theatrical this time. Um much, and much like with the original film, my favorite parts of the of the show were kind of the, the one hitters, the thing that had an idea, came in real quick for a minute or two and got right back out. Uh, that's not to say that there weren't any good jokes in the uh, Civil War or Russian Revolution or Shirley Chisholm sections, just like that isn't to say that there aren't any, any good jokes in, you know, the uh, the Roman Empire or the French Revolution parts of the original film. But the thing with sketch comedy is you really don't want to overstay your welcome. Like you got to know exactly when to get out, what that big laugh line is and when to move on to the next thing. Uh, So for me, the biggest laughs that I got out of the show were those things that were kind of the equivalent of the Spanish Inquisition or the 10 commits, just like you narrow it down to the best, you know, core of the joke. And then you move on to the next, uh, you know, best core of the joke on something totally unrelated. So something like uh, Josh Gad playing Shakespeare is kind of, you know, the garbage showrunner uh, taking credit for everybody else's ideas in the writer's room, but not actually doing any of the work himself or um, turning uh, Judas's betrayal of Jesus into an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, um, turning the Council of Nicaea from, you know, a discussion on Christian theology into a focus group for how to make Jesus more appealing to the masses. Um, or my, my favorite, um, Jack Rasputin, uh, you know, trot Johnny Knoxville out, hit him in, you know, the privates with something and then move on to the next gag that that's been a tried and true joke for 25 years now. Uh, and seeing him do it with, you know, a big heavy cloak on and a long beard, uh, just adds even more to it. Uh, so it, it did feel like a very fitting follow-up, um, the, 
there were definitely some moments in there where I could kind of look at something and be like, okay, that must have been a gag that Mel Brooks contributed because it reminded me so much of, uh, you know, something from Robin Hood or something from Blazing Saddles just could be, you know, something, a single line or a sign in the background, just, you know, with a terrible pun or a terrible joke on it. Um, but yeah, I, I had a blast with the show. Uh, I, I couldn't have been more thrilled with how it played out. Um, you know, sketch comedy is sketch comedy. And this, you know, the, the highs uh, in this one definitely outweighed the, the stuff that didn't work quite as well for me. Okay, it's taken a down, <laughs> this, this part's going to take a downturn for me. But I said, I'm sorry, Mel, but the History of the World Part 2 was a real letdown for me. I had high hopes, like you said, when you heard about it. I just don't think it honored him. I didn't think most of it was very funny. Um, it lacked his creative spark, maybe because, as you said, he wasn't as involved with it. Um, I was just really disappointed. And I think I, I talked to your dad, Jeff. I think he said the same thing. I don't know. There were a couple skits. I did love the, I think it was called the Last Supper Sessions, which was a takeoff on the Beatles Get Back. I thought that was very clever. And um, I really enjoyed that. The Shirley show was kind of a good satire on the 70s shows like the Jeffersons and Good Times. And but other than that, I was disappointed. I'd be curious to, I don't, did you ever read any reviews of it after? I wonder if people are split in their decisions. I mean, I wanted to like it because I, since I love Mel so much, but I just really, uh, I just, for the most part, I, I did not enjoy it. Which, and I'm usually, it's hard for me to say that I, I mean, I like most things, so. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to be negative, but I just didn't, I don't know, maybe I was missing something. What do you I, think, Jeff? I did, I'm not sure I read any reviews in their entirety, but I did skim through a few and I just looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 73% tomato meter. So, you know, mm -hmm. not terrific. The consensus says, um, it's uh, Nick Kroll takes up the torch from Mel Brooks and does him proud with an all-star sketch series that's just as uproariously funny and as hit and miss as the original motion picture. So, yeah, I mean, there were, now I'm looking at the audience score is only 33%. So actually, at least among Rotten Tomatoes users, the, uh, the critics liked it more than general that's audiences. That's a rarity on Rotten tomatoes usually it's the opposite where the the fans yeah. are much much more forgiving than critics yeah mm. yeah that's that's a bit of a surprise for me but yeah i um i definitely i i've noticed a mix of reactions and i i think i i kind of fall somewhere in the middle more positive than not um and i thought i thought it kind of both honored and departed from the template that Mel set with the original. Um, there were a few bits where I'm like, oh yeah, I can see, like this does seem like a Mel Brooks idea. And then there were other things. I'm like, this does, definitely does not feel like a Mel Brooks thing. This feels more like something that that's like explicitly a Nick Kroll idea. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily good or bad. I mean, you know, with 40 years have passed and it's a completely different set of collaborators this time around, you know, no Dom DeLuise, no, uh, who else was in the, the movie, uh, no Madeline Kahn, no Harvey Corman, you know, a lot of, a lot of Mel's collaborators from back in the day have passed away. Um, you know, so it was going to be different and I was, I was okay with it being different, but, um, one thing I noticed, it kind of felt like they were doing like, um, they, a lot of them were doing like a modern version of history, meaning like, like they had modern technology and modern media, like, uh, in the Russian revolution, but, uh, Dove Cameron as Anastasia, she was like a TikTok celebrity. Oh, yeah. Like a and you know, like the movie didn't really do that. At least I, I don't 
recall it doing that. I mean, there was a modern sensibility because it was, you know, 20th century comedians doing their interpretation of history. Um, but yeah, I think so. My favorite part of the show was the Shirley Chisholm sitcom, which I think really captured the 1970s sitcom era mm -hmm. of the Jeffersons, and which I mean, I love sitcoms and sitcom parodies and yeah. i'm like i could i would enjoy this as a, a full-time show maybe yeah. not full, maybe they might struggle to do half hours but i could see them doing it as like an adult swim show where the episodes are only like 12 to 15 minutes um but yeah uh and then and another one that's kind of stood out for me was the the statues bit about the the statue the um where Nick Kroll played the uh, owner of the the company the biz he runs a business about um, helping take down statues of world leaders that have been toppled mm. and reselling them for people who want them in their yards and I'm like this feels like something that would have been on Kroll's show Nick Kroll's uh Comedy Central. Uh, sketch series that was on in the like the middle of the last decade like it didn't feel like as much of a Mel Brooks thing and I'm like you know that that's okay like here's an example where this is definitely different from what the history of the world part one is like but I'm enjoying it whereas some other things where I'm like this is definitely different and it's not working quite as well for me but you know it's it's hit or miss. That's the nature of the, of the sketch series. And um, I, and I was just, I was happy when Mel was on screen or, or his voice was on, on the speakers, but like just hearing him announce the, each segment added a lot. Like even for the parts where I wasn't really laughing, I'm like, I'm, it, it's just good to know that Mel is there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then at the the very end of the last episode, we had the the previews for History of the World Part Two, Season Two, and they were going. And Mel seemed like he more involved in that part than he was for the rest of it. Um, so yeah, like just when you could feel his presence, that 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 lifted it a lot, uh, you know. So even though I wasn't. Uh, I loved some of it, felt so-so about other parts, but just knowing that he was there made it all, I made, in, ensured that I have mostly positive feelings about it. Okay. And then one final question I had. So, you know, Mel Brooks is 96. Is there anything new we would like to see from him still? Anything he's not yet done in his nearly century of living? Stephen, any thoughts about that? Uh, you know, it does feel like that if there's one kind of overriding ethos of Mel Brooks's entire career, it has been taking Nazis down a peg, uh, whether it's in the producers or whether it's in the fact that he actually served in the European theater during World War II. Uh, but that's kind of been... Mel Brooks's, you know, overall modus operandi is taking, you know, the boogeymen of modern history and making them seem less scary than they actually are. Uh, that is unfortunately something which he could still be doing today were he so inclined. Uh, I think that his services uh, to Nazi mockery over the past, you know, 96 years are more than enough to earn him a reprieve uh, now that he's 96 years old. But if Mel Brooks wanted to start a YouTube channel and just, you know, start throwing stuff out there, uh, I would be all for it. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm content with reading his autobiography, uh, you know, watching his films, watching his, his shows, uh, you know, getting that little spark of joy when I'm watching History of the World Part Two, and, and knowing with 100% certainty that like, this is absolutely a note that he came up with. Um, you know, he, he's earned it. Like he's, he's made me laugh so much. It would feel selfish for me to, to ask him to do anything more. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I just thought I said in a funny way, 
since he's 96, I said he could do, instead of the 2,000-year-old man, he could do the 100-year-old man, maybe with Rob Reiner instead of, since Carl Reiner's not around. So that might be fun, but yeah. I thought you were going to go in the opposite direction and say like the one 2,000-year-old man. He can go backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my idea was, I mean, if he's feeling up to it, he could become the oldest host in the history of SNL. Oh, wow. He's I can't never believe hosted he's before. never hosted. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know what how his health is, if he's in decent health or not. I mean, he was he was in good enough health to work on this show. Yeah. So. Hmm, so I'd say he's fun. pretty good by 96-year-old standards, yeah. <laughs> at least. Huh. Okay, I think we should wrap that up because it's yep. that it's, time. Uh, yeah, it's uh, getting the, to be the, that time when the clock is ticking and the, the whistle's blowing. So uh, as we wrap it up, uh, we go around and uh, ask our guests and our co-host and myself, is there anything that you or someone you know is working on that you'd like to promote? And is there anything you'd like to recommend that you can enjoy with your aunts and or nephews uh steven any promotions or recommendations uh the only thing that i have to promote is uh taking care of a 10 month old (laughs) that's about all all that i have time to work so if any of our listeners Uh, can help you with that you'd appreciate it yeah i'm I'm always open for tips and advice although if i may promote myself i feel like i'm doing a pretty decent job of it uh we'll wait maybe still alive see if the reviews are coming in yeah, he, you know, every day I wake up and he's still breathing. I feel like I've done my job. That's right. Um, but uh, recommendations. Uh, I just finished watching Jury Duty on Freevee, um, which is a uh, a pseudo mockumentary about the uh, the workings of the American judicial system following a uh, a twelve person jury around uh, during a trial. Um, the catch is that while most of the people on the jury and on the trial and then the show are actors who are doing kind of a semi-scripted, semi-improvised uh, mockumentary, there's one member of the jury who thinks he's on an actual jury uh, and does not know that everything occurring around him is scripted. Uh, it's kind of, I guess you could say it's a descendant of the Joe Schmo show from you know probably 15, 20 years ago or so. Uh, but it it ends up being a much more good-natured take on kind of a, the hidden camera, candid camera type of thing, where it's not so much about pranking the one non-actor on the jury, but kind of celebrating his decency and um, what like how seriously he takes his role and how open he is to kind of all the ridiculousness that has been scripted to occur around him. Uh, it's eight episodes. They're all streaming now on Freebie or through Amazon Prime if you have that. Uh, um, I, I had a wonderful time with it. Uh, I'm going to try and turn as many people onto it as I can. Uh, so if anybody's listening and you like The Office or you like, you know, Parks and Recreation or any of the spate of modern uh, mockumentary style shows, uh, give this one a shot. It's it's got a lot of that, but with a fun twist. Sounds fun. I'll have to look for that. My sister is on the same mission of trying to get everyone to watch Jury Duty. Oh, yeah. I've never heard about it. It's a worthwhile Um, mission. um, Even though I haven't seen this yet, I'm recommending The Little Mermaid. Mostly, well, it sounds exciting, but then I was reading the cast and I found out that besides Melissa McCarthy, that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and David Diggs are both in it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm now I'm really excited about it. So that opens May 26th. And then Who's a show King that- King Triton? I remember just hearing about that and getting excited about that casting. That who's, uh, David Diggs is Sebastian and Lin-Manuel is Chef Louis. Was that his, or something like that? Yeah, I don't know who King, who's playing. Oh, Javier Bardem. Oh, he yeah, was just on Conan good. O'Brien's podcast, so they, they mentioned that. Yeah, got a good cast then. And then something I'm watching now on HBO is that I'm really liking is Love and Death. Um, and I've got two or three more, but <laughs> a funny story. So I'm watching it, 
And I got to like the third episode and I was like, boy, this story sounds familiar. And then I realized, oh yeah, you watched it a year ago and it was called Candy. So it's the same story. Oh, right. Yeah, I didn't yeah. realize. So they did it. I don't know if it was on Hulu last year with uh, Jessica Biel. And now this is on HBO with um, Elizabeth Olsen. But she's and Jesse Plemons. So those were two of the reasons I wanted to watch because I think she's good in everything. Um, and so, yeah, it's based on a true story about a murder. And um, I don't know if you'd want to watch it with young kids or not, but uh, I think it's done very well. So I'm enjoying that. Nothing to promote. Okay, well, I'll promote the usuals. You can always read my... Uh reviews and other blogging on jmoney.com and we have a patreon if you'd like to uh, support us that way you can listen to episodes a little early if you do that and ken jong you still have an open invitation to uh, be guest on this show whenever you'd like to and as far as recommendations there are a couple things that i started watching this past week that i've really been enjoying one that i was super glad that i've liked is uh, the muppets mayhem on disney plus which focuses on Dr. Teeth and the electric mayhem. And I've watched the first couple of episodes so far and liked it quite a bit. And then on ABC on Wednesday nights for the next couple of weeks is the documentary series, The Game Show Show. It's kind of an overview of the entirety of American game shows from the 50s to today. That's on ABC and then streaming on Hulu the next day. Uh, yeah, so those are those are both some good family watches. And, has that uh, is the game show that. show just starting tomorrow night, or has it already been it's, on? So it started on May tenth. Oh, so okay. we're we're recording this on a Tuesday. The next episode will be airing tomorrow night. Okay, so, and there's going to be four episodes total. Okay. Uh, yeah so okay and you can leave us a review um you can go to ratethispodcast.com slash that's entertainment and we'll see it and we'll read the review on air and please only give us five stars uh if you want to give us less than that that's fine too but we will be you'll make us very sad (laughs) you don't you don't want to make aunt beth sad no. Uh, you can cry. follow us on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter if you use any of those. And I guess it's time to uh, finally say our salutations. And so I don't know if Stephen ever knew that I always say, How did this start? Was this from our Jeopardy episode? I always say, What is good night? But it must have, that's been for years now so i, don't know I feel like you first... started it like soon after the jeopardy episode yeah it must have been okay yeah well what is good night Stephen? thank you for uh stopping by again you're getting you're inching ever so closer to the five timers club uh-oh i'll get there one of these days thank yeah. you for having me back yeah good to have you and see ya and, and... i will say keep your remotes handy and your eyes open